Today's the first week in August, and it's the fourth week of our series that I've titled Arise. We've titled Arise, and it's, it's really about us answering God's call on our lives as a church. It's, it's, it's our call to dare to be different, to be a community where we love and support and protect each other, where we live in covenant commitment and relationship with each other, where we tear down the relational walls and and really be intentional with getting into each other's lives. It's all about us being intentional to cultivate the life of Christ in those around us. That's what it's all about. That's what this series is all about. It's a call to rise up and be God's people. Over the last three weeks, I've been talking to you about the importance of family and the importance of team. And so today, I want to shift our focus a bit. I want to talk to you about how we should respond when we're faced with opposition. How we should respond when we're faced with opposition. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to join me in Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. I've titled this sermon today, Responding to Oppositions God's Way. Now for the last three weeks, and today is no different, I've given you a key statement. I want to go back to this statement because I think that it's important. It's kind of foundational to where we're at. And here's a statement. God uses the challenges in what he's called us to do to shape us. Can you hang on to her, Mama? Thank you. God uses the challenges in what he's called us to do to shape us and to make us more like him. God uses the challenges in what he's called us to do to shape us and to make us more like him. Now, how many of you will agree that you, are, you grow the most in the times that you're challenged the most? Yes? God uses those challenges to shape us. So how should we, how should you respond when the work that God has called you to is being challenged by Satan? How should we respond? We're going to jump into that today. But by way of review, I want to go back and review the first three chapters. You know, we started off in Nehemiah chapter 1 where Nehemiah is met uh, by by an entourage, if you will, of exiles that came from Jerusalem into the capital city of Susa, uh, the capital city of the Persian Empire. And and he asked them a fog-cutting question that shaped his life and changed his life forever. He simply asked, how's Jerusalem? And how are the people in Jerusalem? And after he asked that question, he did three things. First, he listened, and he absorbed the need. The second thing he did was he spent time in prayer, and then he responds. He responds to God's call on his life. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. He has the, the ear to the king. He is the king's closest confidant. He is a a trusted confidant of the king, the only person in this position, and God places him there in that position of friendship and trust to get the ear of the king. He makes a request. The king grants his request, and Nehemiah heads down to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he operates in stealth mode for the first three days, and he does three things while he's investigating the city. First, he goes and he sees it. He sees it for himself. He heard what others had told him. He had envisioned what it looked like, but he couldn't grasp the depth of the depravity until he went to see it for himself. He sees it. Then then he takes what God has given him 
and he shares his vision for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and the city. And then what happens is remarkable. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 18 says, And the people came together and they said, Let us arise and let us build the city. In other words, Nehemiah started off with the vision, but others came along and strengthened it. And then I told you over the last three weeks that ministry is not, it's not the product of one or two people with a vision or a mission. Ministry occurs when many people catch the vision and go to work to see it come to pass. Remember that? So here's what Nehemiah does in chapter 3. He employs what what I call the next two's plan. It's a brilliant strategy where he strategically and skillfully divides the people of Jerusalem or the people, the Jews, into 50 manageable work groups. They're organized by affinity. They're organized by profession, by affiliation, by geography. But most importantly, they're organized by family, by family found that the next two plan provides us with three or four sources of, of encouragement. The first one is unity. It gives the people to know, it gave the people to know as they were working side by side that they were not alone, that there were others working with them. It gave them cause. You see, the walls, and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem was, a, was greater than themselves. It was something bigger than themselves. Rebuilding the wall would, in fact, affect generations to come. The third thing it did by way of encouragement is it provided confidence, working side by side with others, bringing everything that they had to the table, their gifts, their time, their talent, their treasure, their touch. And when you do that and and you see others pulling their load, it gives you the confidence to pull your own so that we all can succeed in this thing together. And the fourth thing is it, it, it provided protection. It provided protection and support. Mutual dependence and support on each other. They had each other's back. I've got your back. You've got my back. Nehemiah knew that we would fight for the ones that we love in the face of opposition. So now here's what I want you to hear. Anything that God desires us to do, anything that is his plan and his will for us, anything that God calls us to will be opposed by Satan. He is going to oppose us at every turn when we step into fulfilling God's will for our lives. Satan always does his best to disrupt disrupt God's plan for our life. He will always do it. And let me, let me tell you something. We have a very real enemy that would love nothing more than to derail you from God's purpose in your life and to kill, steal, and to destroy you. That's his job. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, he says, listen, Satan's strategy is to conquer you, is to outwit you. But then he goes on to tell us, he said, but we are not ignorant of his devices. We know how he works. See, he's been at it for a long time. He's been doing what he does for thousands and thousands of years. But he really only has one battle plan. And it comprises of three or four tactics. But he uses them so well because he brings them at different angles. 
And if you're not aware of what he's doing and how he comes at you, he will get you sidetracked, derailed, and in the position to be destroyed. You guys hear me? So, how does Satan come at us? He comes at us in three ways. The offense of the enemy, the attacks of the enemy, will always come psychologically, physically, or personally. He'll always try to deal with us in one of those three areas. In the book of Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, we find Jesus being driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted of the devil. That his sole purpose was, his sole purpose was for God to take the challenges in what he had called Jesus to do to shape him and to mold him into that calling, to make him more fit for what he had in front of him in his call. So Satan tries to tempt Jesus. The first thing he comes to him with is psychological warfare, with ridicule. He mocks him. He teases him. He jeers at him. He belittles him. He knows that Jesus is weak. And so he comes to him and he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. See, psychological warfare by the enemy is designed to do one of two things. It's designed to get you to stop doing what God has told you to do or to start doing something that you shouldn't be doing. Yes? That's his warfare. So if you are the son of God, if you're really the son of God, yet I know you're hungry, turn these stones to bread. You're not really the son of God. You can't do that. You can't turn these stones to bread. You know you're hungry. You know you should turn them to bread. You know it's okay. Nah, you can't do it. You're not powerful enough. You're not strong enough. You don't have the authority to do that. I can just see Satan coming at him with psychological ridicule. Second thing that Satan does is he challenges him physically, with reality. He says, I'll give you all of these things. He takes him to the top of the mountain, says, I'll give you all these things if you'll just bow down and worship me. See, what Satan does is he, he appeals to us physically through either pain or pleasure. Through either fear or personal gratification. So he goes to Jesus and says, I'll give you all these things and you can enjoy the pleasures of this world physically. The third thing he does is he appeals to Jesus relationally. He says, listen, takes him up to the pinnacle, says, why don't you toss yourself down? Says, because your father loves you. He doesn't want to see anything happen to you. He'll give angels to give charge over you unless you dash your foot against the stone." He says, he cares about you. He loves you. He doesn't want anything to happen to you. And Satan knows that when he comes at you in this way, it can either encourage you to do what God has called you to do, or it can discourage you from doing what God has called you to do. Now, when you resist Satan, I'll tell you something, and you know this to be true, he'll always disappear for a season, won't he? He'll leave you alone for a little while, but rest assured, he's coming back. So, what can we learn from Nehemiah? What we'll learn from Nehemiah today is, 
is how, how natural opposition that we're faced with should present into, in us a resolve to do what God has called us to do. That should be our response. You see, the issue is never opposition. It's never the opposition because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The issue is our resolve to the opposition. So, how do you respond when you're faced with opposition? How resolved are you to do what God has called you personally to do? Today in our passage, we're going to look at how Satan opposes us and attacks us in three ways, and we're going to see how Nehemiah responds with a godly resolve. Here's the first. Nehemiah is exposed to psychological warfare, ridicule. Are you in Nehemiah chapter 4? Let's look at verse 1. Now when Sambalat had heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Let me stop for a second. You know, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I think these cats had some anger management issues. Because he said he was, he was angry and greatly enraged. That's, that sounds like a problem to me. And he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they receive the stories, the stones, out of the heaps of the rubble and the burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes. What are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. What is, what is, what is Sambalat doing? First of all, he talks about the people. He belittles the people. That's his first approach to psychological warfare. You feeble Jews, you're worthless. You can't do anything by yourself. You've never had anything without me, and you'll never have anything without me. You've tried that before, and you've failed. How many of you have, have had to sit up in the midnight hour and listen to the enemy attacking you psychologically in that way? Okay, I'm the only one. Huh? Come on. You feeble Jews. The second thing he attacks is the plan. Will you finish in a day? You think you can handle this, really? And then I believe he attacks Nehemiah. I believe he says, listen, you are trying to rebuild this wall, and you are following a guy that has no building experience. He's been a cupbearer to the king. He doesn't know how to lead you. Will you try to rebuild this thing in a day? The second thing, the third thing he does is he attacks the materials. He says, you're going to use this old stuff that's been torn down, and, and, and worse, it's been burned, it's been used. You know, I, I, as I looked at this, I, I thought about all the, you know, all the um, examples to use. And the ones that come to me are, you ever watched a movie where you got this guy, he's kind of like, he's got something to prove. And, you know, he's kind of like a wimpy kind of punky guy, but he's got an entourage of people. And so he's trying to prove something to his entourage. And then when you get him by himself, he can't, like, he starts cowering. You ever seen one of those guys? That's what Sam Ballard kind of reminds me of that guy. Seems like he's got something to prove to the people that he's around, to the, to the Sumerian army and to his brothers. <laughs> you 
He says, uh, he says, so you're going to try to use that stuff that's torn down. And then Tobiah comes along, the Ammonite, and he ridicules their structural engineering. He says, listen, that thing that you're trying to build, if a little fox jumped on it, it would fall down. Psychological warfare. I love Nehemiah's response. Let's look at verse 4 and verse 5. Nehemiah says, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where, where they are captives. And do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah says, hey, God, I'm not going to take my focus off you. I need you to handle my enemies for me. And he never engages them. He simply stays focused on the task at hand. Why? Because Nehemiah knows that the mission is far more important than his ego. It's far more important than him by himself. And so what's the second thing that he does? The first thing that he does is he prays. The second thing that he does is he takes action. He builds. Look at verse 6. So we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half his heights. Why? For, because the people, for the people had a mind to work. The people had a mind to work. Didn't say the peoples had minds to work. The people had a mind to work. It takes me back to, to Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. You remember the story? where the people had, had been commanded by God to spread out through all the world, right, through all the earth and inhabit the earth. But instead, they meet in Babel and they decide, we're going to build a temple. We're going to build a tower that stretches up to the heavens. And the Bible says that God came down and looked at them and said, listen, man, the people are one. And there is nothing that they won't be able to accomplish if they're of one mind. Let me ask you this. If all of us in here set our minds and hearts to do what God has called us to do, what is it that we can't accomplish? We can do anything. Nothing would be impossible. And that's what Nehemiah is telling us here. So what happens? Same thing that happened with Jesus. He encourages the people. Nehemiah does. The enemy goes away for a while, but then he shows up again. And he he escalates the warfare. Says if name calling and ridicule won't do it, then we resort to something stronger. And so then he brings the second phase, physical attack, reality. He hits them with reality. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. Then Sambalad and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed. And they were very angry. There's that anger problem again. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion. You see what I mean by excel, about escalated warfare? Not only do they want to cause confusion, but they also now, they want to attack them physically and cause confusion. Accelerated warfare. Accelerated warfare. Do you know the enemy will do anything to keep us from being in unity? 
He will do anything that he can to keep us from working together in unity. You know why? Because unity is intimidating to Satan. When God's people are united, it is a powerful force because where there is unity, there is strength. And where there is strength, it is tough for the enemy to cause anything to disrupt. Where there's unity, there's nothing impossible to be accomplished. So how does Nehemiah respond? Look down at verse 9. He says, and we prayed to our God. And, everybody say and. Everybody didn't say it. Everybody say and. And. Yes. He said, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. What does Nehemiah do? He goes back to that same pattern that I told you about. First, he observes the need. He sees what's going on. Then he prays, seeks God, cries out to God, and then... He takes action. He prepares to fight. And remember last week I told you that we'll fight for those who we love. Remember, they were already placed in in the geographical locations next to their families. See? They had skin in the game. So Nehemiah prepares them to fight. Now let me say something to you because sometimes... Sometimes God will supernaturally fight for us. But there are other times that God calls us to fight for ourselves in his power. Hmm. Sometimes we have to have a righteous indignation that, that just wells up on the inside of us at once that makes us fight the enemy. I hate sin. I hate sin. Sometimes it it gets distorted me because sometimes I hate sin so much, sometimes I have to make sure that I I intentionally separate the sin from the sinner. I hate sin. Something should well up on the inside of us. See, Christians shouldn't be afraid to fight, man. We shouldn't be afraid to fight. We should never be afraid to fight for what we know is right. We should never be afraid to fight for and protect each other. There are some things worth fighting for. You know, I've been, I've been told, you know, by, by many that I have this sweet demeanor. <laughs> You're such a wonderful pastor. You're so loving. You're Dr. Jekyll. But I'll tell you something. There are some things that you, you'll watch the Mr. Hyde come out of me. You mess with my biological family. You mess, mess, mess with Pelzetta. I'll tell you something. There's probably parts of me that ain't been, that's not saved yet. <laughs> you mess with my wife. You mess with my family. And there's a ferocity that, that rises up on the inside of me. When people mess with you, my church family, there's a ferocity that rises up on the inside of me. And, and, and because I'm so passionate about maintaining the integrity of God's word, when I see someone misusing words, the word of God, something rises up on the inside of me and I want to fight. I just want to fight. 
Because I'm responsible to maintain the integrity of God's word. I am the under-shepherd under Jesus Christ to watch over you and I care for you and I will fight for you with the ferocity. Sometimes we have to fight, y'all. Thank you, Ron. <laughs> Listen, I said this before, I'm going to say it again. There's a difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. God has called me to be a person of peace. But there's a difference between a, being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. See, a peacekeeper will maintain peace, you know, by, by, by making sure that there's a separation, that, that, the, uh, that the truce has not been broken. I liken it as to, like, like a friend of mine that had Rottweilers, he raised Rottweilers. And, and he had two great big old male Rottweilers. And he was introducing one of the males to, to his, his group. I forget what you call them. It's not a pride. Lions are pride, but you know what I'm talking about. Pack, thank you. So he has this, he has this great big old 120-pound Rottweiler that he's introducing to his group. And the two meet for the first time, the two males. And the hair stands up in the back of their neck. And he steps between them. Stop it. He steps back. He knows what's going to happen. They get close together. They start nudging together. You know, dogs have to smell each other. Hey. Stop it, he said. Stop it. Now, what Michael could have easily done is Michael could have easily taken one of those Rottweilers and put them on one side and tied the other one up on the other side and just let them bark at each other. That's what peacekeepers do. But what peacemakers do, they're not afraid to get in the fight and fight to maintain the peace. So peacemakers, like Michael, they let the dogs go, and then they go, and they're just eating each other up, man, blood coming all over. He sticks his hand in the middle, and he breaks them up. Stop it! Stop it! Stop! Stop it! Stop! And he looks down at his hands and they're bloody. Been bit a few times. But he doesn't care. Because there are some things that are worth fighting for. When it comes to maintaining relationships, when it comes to building team and working side by side with each other, when it comes to being in each other's lives, loving each other with covenant commitment and covenant relationship, and in a way that it brings unity, the enemy will always oppose that. We are to fight for that at any cost. You with me on that? Now, that illustration must have came from heaven because I wasn't in my notes. <laughs> so Nehemiah says, listen, I'm a peaceful man. He says, I want peace. But listen, Sam Ballard, if you want to fight, come on. Bring it. I'm ready to fight. And we have to be ready to fight in this spiritual battle that we're in whenever the enemy brings a warfare to our door as well when he attacks us physically. The third way the enemy attacks us, and opposes us is personally, through relationships. Drop down to verse 10. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 10. And in Judah it was said that the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. 
And our enemy said, and our enemy said, let me stop right there because to me, this sounds just like, you know, when the children of Israel sent out the 12 spies into the land and 10 of them came back with a bad report, you know, and, and they said, you know, we, we look like grasshoppers to them and moreover, we look like grasshoppers in our own sight. Remember that? Remember that story? This sounds a whole like that, a whole lot like that. And our enemy said, they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who had lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, man, you got to stop. You got to stop. You got to stop the building. See, sometimes the enemy will attack us through relationships. He'll use those who are close to us to discourage us sometimes. Mm. I just felt like I hit something just then. You know, I said this before and I'll say it again. You know, never take what somebody says to you as the gospel until you search it out in your own spirit. Because people can be in error giving you what thus says the Lord, and it could be way off from what God has called you to do. And instead of being an encouragement, it can cause internal discouragement and fear and slow down God's process that he has you on in your life. I could just hear him. We've never done anything like this before. Our opposition is too strong. It's too strong. But here's what I want to encourage you with, family. God's will for your life is not optional. It is not optional. When God calls you to do something, you've got to be about doing it. You can never let anybody talk you out of what God has told you to do. Everybody say, preach, pastor. Thank you for your encouragement. So, how does Nehemiah respond to this? He responds with encouragement. See, we don't read anywhere in this passage where we see Nehemiah uh, paying much attention to their complaints. We don't see anywhere in this passage where Nehemiah kowtows to, to, to what they want. Instead, this is a great lesson for us. And here's the lesson. If we stick with something long enough, to get through the discouragement, we'll get to the encouragement. Because sometimes you have to stick with something long enough to get through the discouragement before you can get to the encouragement. That's a good word, man. What are you going through today that's got you discouraged? If you're anything like me, the enemy brings discouragement all of the time. You got to fight through it to get to where God wants you to be. I'd say it this way. Sometimes discouragement can be a gift because you'll never know how strong your faith is until you've been in a good fight. Nehemiah responds with encouragement, and it's indicative of how we should respond. Let me read verses 13, 14, and 19. And this will be my last point. Verse 13 and 14, are you there? Encouragement. So in the lower parts of the space behind the wall and in the open places, I stationed people by their clans 
with their swords and spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and fight for your sons and fight for your daughters and fight for your wives and fight for your homes. Now, this was, this was almost 3,000 years ago. And the war is still raging. We have to fight for our wives. We have to fight for our brothers. We have to fight for our sisters. We have to fight for our children. We have to fight for our homes because we are in a very real war. And let me tell you something. Our enemy is not taking any prisoners. His job is to steal, kill, and destroy. And God has called us to fight for each other. So Nehemiah tells us how to respond. He says, by encouraging one another, Melissa, you can come up. Listen, here's how we respond. By working together. Yeah, the work is great. There's a whole lot to be done. It can be overwhelming. The work that God is doing in your life is great. And when he takes you through trials and challenges, it can be overwhelming, can it? It can. The work is great. So he calls us to rally to each other's needs. When we see or we hear about a need, we should rally. We should be the first responders. Look at verse 19. And I said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. We are separated on this wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Why, Nehemiah? Because when we get involved with protecting and supporting each other, God will meet us there every single time. And he will fight for us. So Nehemiah calls us to protect and support each other. I want you to know something, family, as I close. When the enemy attacks us, he's not going to attack us in the fortified places. He's going to attack us in the low places, in the area of our weaknesses. That's what he does. And so just like Nehemiah put guards around the vulnerable spots on the wall, we should guard each other's weak spots. We should know each other's weak spots, and we should guard each other's weak spots. Doing this serves two purposes, family. The first it discourages the enemy from attacking our brothers and sisters. Remember I told you last week that I was out there and I was getting ready to scrap and nobody would fight me because they knew if they fought me, they'd have to fight my brothers and sisters. Listen, how discouraged would the enemy be if every single time he attacked one of us, he got blindsided from behind because one of you was praying for your brother or your sister. I feel the Holy Spirit right now. What if? What if? The second thing it does is it encourages people to deal with their vulnerability. When people know that they have a vulnerable spot in their life and they know they can bring that to you as their brother or your brother, 
their brother or their sister and they know that you're not going to walk away from them, that they're not going to scare, be, they're not going to scare you away, they're more apt to bring that spot of vulnerability to you so that the strong can bear the infirmity of the weak. Rally, rally, rally. Where there's a weak spot, when you see the need, rally to the need. Support and protect. And then finally, remember the God that we serve. Remember that no matter what you're facing today, you don't have to be afraid. See, Nehemiah knew this. He knew that even in the face of opposition, if God is doing something in your life, if he's called you to do something, he is able to give you the power and the ability to complete the work that he started. And he will. God will join you in what he's called you to do. And he will fight for you to see it through.